Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Born and raised in Queens, New York, Michael Keller is a graduate of the Manhattan School of Music. Upon graduation in 1971, he pursued a career as a professional performing musician spanning the next 35 years. Besides touring in the early 70s with Broadway national tours of Promises, Promises, Applause, and The Magic Show, Michael also worked with The Fifth Dimension and Dionne Warwick. Being hired as the original drummer for their Playing Our Song on Broadway led to the beginning of his long and rewarding working and personal relationship with Marvin Hamlish. He embarked on a second related career as music coordinator beginning in 1992. Marvin Hamlish gave him the responsibility to hire and coordinate the 63-piece orchestra for the Barbra Streisand concert tour in 1994. Michael repeated that effort several times over the next 15 to 20 years. Since 1993, Michael has been the contractor for Memphis the Musical, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill, Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, The Book of Mormon, Wicked, The Lion King, and many, many more. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Keller. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Michael Keller. Thank you for being a part of this. It's my pleasure, Clayton. You joined Local 802, the Musicians Union in New York City, the year I was born. 1965. <laughs> 1965, eh? Oh, 1966, actually. I was born. Six, okay. All right. Wow. Yeah. So you, you were born in Queens, and you were a native New Yorker. What made you decide to, to, to go into music? Very simple. The Beatles. Really? Yeah, I was 14 uh, in 1963 when they, when they broke, uh, certainly when they broke here in, in the States. And... Uh, that was the inspiration for a lot of people. And, and I, I took drum lessons and two of my friends took guitar lessons. Another guy took, took bass lessons. And we, uh, we eventually formed a band uh, called, of all things, The Downbeats. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we used to play fraternity gigs and other things. And, you know, but that was the, that was the original inspiration. But for me, it became pretty serious pretty quickly. And, um, and the other guys, you know, none of them pursued music. But, um, you know, within a short amount of time, I really started to shed because um, I wanted to try to get into a, a music school, right? So um, I took lessons from a local guy where I lived. Um, and he used to take lessons himself from... Um, this guy was legendary in the studio scene and in the uh, legit scene. He was a percussionist named Morris Goldenberg, and he was in the um, uh, the Phil Philharmonic. He was uh, one of the, the percussionists. So I started taking percussion lessons with him because at that time uh, you could not attend like Manhattan School of Music or Juilliard or any of those programs as a drummer. You could they only you could only go through those schools as a percussion major. So I had to get my percussion chops together. So I, I did like, like a real crash kind of 18 month uh, thing, trying to get that together. And I actually got into the Manhattan School of Music. I applied to two schools. I applied to um, 
Manette School of Music and Queens College, because I knew Queens had a, an excellent um, uh, music school as well, right? So I got into both schools. Obviously, I chose to go to Manhattan. Uh, at the time, the guy I was studying with, Mar Morris Goldenberg, was on staff, and then he had a contract dispute. He left, and so I wound up spending... I was actually there five years because I was out of school for one semester. The uh, percussion ensemble went on a cultural uh, affairs uh, tour of, of Europe, which was kind of interesting at 18 years old, you know. So, uh, so I was there for five years and um, uh, graduated in 71, okay? Um, and the, the way I got started with shows, it's kind of... Um, kind of a unique situation for me at least because I, my older brother is was a musician very active in the scene did a lot of Broadway shows and a friend of his was a drummer who was doing an off-Broadway show called Jacques Brel's Alive and Well Living in Paris it was down at the Village Gate which at one which at that time was on the corner of Leaker and Thompson Street it was basically a, like a jazz club. Um, but we, we did this, there was a, this off-Broadway production of a show called Jacques Brel Live While Living in Paris. Jacques Brel was a French composer. Um, and uh, he was having a lot of trouble getting subs because guys weren't available. I mean, or, or if he needed somebody and they weren't available at that time, whatever. So he hit on the idea that me being a student, uh, I wouldn't have any conflicts. <laughs> so uh, I learned the show. I, I basically shedded the show and I learned it. And it was a it was a, a combination chair. It was drums with some percussion. There was like a quite a bit of marimba, uh, you know, mallets in it and some chimes and whatever. Um, so anyway, I got it together and I was supposed to do a three week. Uh, slot for him and while he was away he injured himself i wound up doing the show for six months oh wow yeah and then i went and then he came back and then he left again and i did another six months um meantime i started doing some other off-broadway shows there was a, a show called um it was like a parody of the shirley temple movies it was called curly mcdimple so i started subbing on that show and then eventually took over the chair. Um, meanwhile, I was all, I was in school, you know, so I was still going through the Manhattan, the program. Um, and then I got a, a great opportunity to sub on uh, Promises, Promises, which was a Burt Backrack, Hal David show um, that opened, I think, in 1968. I started subbing on the show in 1970. It's my first Broadway experience. Uh, it's a funny thing. The first time I looked at the book, the drummer was Alphonse Muzon. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. The original yeah. drummer was Bobby Thomas, who left and Alphonse took over. And then when Alphonse left, um, a guy named Buddy Neely took over the chair. And that's who I subbed for. I used to sub for Buddy. And um, I graduated in 71. And that fall, uh, I went out with the second national tour of Promises, Promises. And so I spent the next couple of years basically 
being on the road doing shows. I did Promises, Promises. I did um, Applause. I did uh, The Magic Show. Um, so, you know, that was kind of, I got involved very young. I was in 1968 when I started subbing on Jacques Brel, I was 19 years old. So in the, in the, you said that the Ed Sullivan Beatles show was the catalyst that propelled you into wanting to be a musician. Correct. Did you want to be you know, be a rock star like that and be in a band like that. And you wound up doing the Broadway thing for, you know, as far as I know right now, starting in 68 through where we left off in 1971 or so, did you want to be in a big rock band or did you just say, you know, I just want to play music wherever I can? Well, yeah, I mean, I think everyone, you know, most musicians aspired to something, you know, like that, either being in a rock band or, or uh, a jazz band, you know, uh, fusion, whatever. I mean, because I, I, you know, I listened to all of that that stuff, all that music. I mean, there was a lot of great late 60s movies, um, um, music. There were, there were quite a few uh, bands, obviously, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. There was another band called Ten Wheel Drive. Um, they were like big ensembles, Elephant's Memory. I mean, they were, they were big bands with horn sections and whatever. So, yeah, that was always something that I wanted to do, but you know, you have to live, right? So, so when the opportunities came along to play shows or whatever, I was ready, willing, and able to do it. And the thing is, when I came out of Manhattan, having to have having to go through the school as a percussion major uh, and all of the percussion ensemble playing that I did, I came out of school. I mean, I was just, I was just completely and totally prepared. I mean, it was like, my attitude was like, you got music, stick it on the stand, count it off, let's go. <laughs> I mean, I had I had like, I had a really, in the 70s, that early 70s, I had a real high level of confidence. The thing is, is that, you know, I played percussion seriously through college. I actually gave it a, a solo recital before I graduated, but I'd always wanted to just be a drummer. So I kind of let all of that stuff go and just started just playing drums and wanting to have gigs as a drummer. That was kind of like how I started. Uh, you know, it's, it's a funny thing, um, the path that everybody takes, you know what I mean? It's, it's and look, when I came up in the late 60s, there was a ton of work going on, right? I mean, there was a very vibrant recording scene the three major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, all had staff orchestras. That was their gig. Five days a week, they went to the studio, whatever studio it was, and that was their gig. They were, uh, they were an a ABC staff musician, NBC staff musician. NBC at one time had an actual full symphony orchestra on staff. So, you know, the late 60s, there was a ton of works and everybody wanted to be in the studios, right? The thing about Promises is that that was one of the first shows that was kind of a crossover. A lot of the guys in that pit were actually well established in the recording scene, but because it was Hal David, Burt Backrack and whatever, it was like more of a pop thing that was like one of the first shows that really tapped into that genre of player. And it you know, obviously 
it, it became like the, the norm. Guys would be studio musicians, but also would want a, a Broadway show. You know, you got to jump ahead now, Clayton, to 2022. Everybody wants a Broadway show because it's the best gig in town. Unless you're in the Philharmonic or the Met or whatever, having a Broadway show is the best gig in town. Recording, the recording scene is nearly non-existent at this point, you know. So it was a whole different time. Uh, I mean, I survived the 70s, certainly the, you know, because I lived in L.A. for about two and a half years in the mid-70s. Uh, when I did that show, I mentioned the, the magic show. It, it wound up in L.A., and the guitar player and I just decided to stay and live in L.A. We're going to make our fortune in L.A. That lasts about two and a half years because L.A. is not my cup of tea. <laughs> I, I don't, it's funny that I don't know if I would have stayed in LA because what happened was I met my wife. Uh, we've been together now 45 years, but uh, I met her and she was living in, in uh, New York and it kind of gave me an excuse to come back home. Something that I've never regretted because uh, LA, the, uh, the thing in LA just never really, I never grooved with the, with the whole LA thing. I find the musicians here have always been much more, um, to, you know, to use the word collegial. I mean, I've always found the musicians to be much more supportive of each other and straight ahead, straightforward. You know, that's why I used that expression earlier. I mean, you know, if a guy didn't want to be bothered with you, he'd just tell you to get lost, you know, F off, you know, mm-hmm. where that's not what I found in L.A. Where I, What I found in L.A. were guys would come across as being very friendly and very uh, inclusive. And then, you know, doors would be slammed in your face left and right. So Mm. I don't know what it's like now. You have to understand it's almost 50 years since I lived in L.A. So Mm. I don't know what it's like now. I don't know if things have changed. Um, But the guys were very, very proprietary about their their work uh, uh, accounts. So anyway, I found myself back in New York. And uh, I, I literally survived the mid to late 70s doing cabaret um, because at that time, unlike today, singers used to get booked into these clubs for like a week at a time, sometimes two weeks. And I used to just go from, I'm just going to mention these clubs that were happening at the time. I used to go like I would do a week at Reno Sweeney's and then I'd go do two weeks at the grand finale. And then I'd go do a week at the Blue Angel. Then I'd go back to Reno Sweeney's for two weeks. So I was, there was just all of this cabaret work. And people were booked, not for a single night, but for a week at a time. Sometimes, like I said, multiple weeks. So I survived doing that. And then, um, Can I ask you a question about that? Sure. Uh, did you have to bring your drums to these places? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was a sight in the, in the 70s, man, because I, I had a... I was part of a studio uh, with six other, five students, six of us, I think, all together. We had a studio on 50th and 7th. It, the building doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down, but it was, we had a, a two-room studio um, and it was set up, the front room was set up as a rehearsal space. So there was a drum kit and a Fender Rhodes piano and a couple of amps. And the back room was all basically storage, you know. Um, so I was quite a picture, uh, at that time, you'd see me walking through the streets with my, my, uh, trap case with my 
bass drum and toms piled up on top and I would just wheel it through the streets, man. Or at the time, you know, there was a, there were cabs called checker cabs, which were these huge cabs. You could just open the back door and throw your whole drum kit in the back. So, so I used to do that too, but I, yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> things, times have changed, man. When I was, you know that I was with Dion Warwick, right? In the, during that time that I lived in LA, uh, I was with Dion Warwick for about a year and a half. Uh, where'd, a you, where'd you meet her? I auditioned for the gig. Hmm. Um, I, uh, in, I, let me see, that was in 76. Um, I think I, I thought I had at one time I had turn, uh, uh, told you that I was on an album called um, A Man and a Woman, Dion Warwick and Isaac Hayes. Oh, uh, yeah, you did tell me about that. that. We did in, in Atlanta during that time period. Uh, but I was with her from 76 into 77. And um, there were no roadies. There were no, I mean, I used to lug my drums to the airport, check them in to the, onto the plane, what? take them off the, the, the plane, uh, put a, get and get a, a station wagon. I mean, that's how we, I mean, that's how that gig was done, man. You know, so now it's a whole different thing now. <laughs> but uh, back in those days, there were no roadies. There were no guys setting up your drums. There were no, there was none of that. So, um, so one other question about those cabaret gigs, you know, I sometimes when, when bands, well, when I was playing clubs in the nineties and two thousands, I'd get a certain amount and they're probably getting the same amount now back in 19, in, in the mid seventies, were you getting paid per week or was it per show? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, you know, if there was a, if it was a week's, uh, a week's uh, run at Reno Sweeney's, you know, uh, maybe I'd get $200 for the week, you know, maybe, okay. you know, look, I, I was the house drummer at Dangerfields uh, when Rodney Dangerfield had a, he had a club on first Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I was the house drummer there for a year. My salary this is 1973 to 1974, right? So September to September of those two years. My salary for six nights a week before taxes was $150 a week. I used to tell, I'll tell you exactly, I used to take home $132 a week. So, you know, I had, a, I had a ton of experience, different experiences during the 70s, you know, but I, I um, Playing shows was always, it was always there, you know, it was always, I was subbing uh, on, on some shows. And then I got my own first show. The first show that I had got that was mine from the beginning was a show called uh, The Plane I Saw. Um, Marvin Hamlish and uh, Carol Bear Sager. Um, and uh, I was good friends with the conductor. And that's how I got the gig. And, uh, you know, I did that. It ran for a couple of years. Then I did a, I went right into another thing called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And that ran for a couple of years. And then the transition for me into uh, contracting happened in the early 90s. I had reconnected with Marvin in the late 80s and started doing his concert work uh, like 89, 90 something like that. And I eventually became not only his drummer, I also became his conductor. So I used to conduct and play drums for him. And that, I did that for 15 years. 
Um, so during that time, I was still subbing on shows and whatever. Morgan was a big, we were very, very close friends. And he was, he was a, a really big supporter of mine. And when I told him I wanted to get into contracting, he was very instrumental in opening the doors. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'll never forget the first, uh, the first thing that he, the first project he gave me was a 50 piece orchestra for a movie score. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of uh, flipped me out to, to uh, that was my first experience. But the thing is, I, I never had any issue with rhythm players or even horn players, but I knew I, I was totally out of the, a fish out of water with string players, man. So, uh, but I was smart. I hired a, uh, one of the studio string guys uh, as my concert master. Um, I made him the leader on the gig and I asked him to subcontract the string section. <laughs> I was about to ask you, how'd you make that happen? That's interesting. Well, that's what I did. And that, right. that became, that became my, my original basis for string players. So, um, you know, and then of course that led to, uh, my doing the goodbye girl, which is the first show that I was the contractor on, but I also played the show. And then the big thing for me, the thing that really opened doors for me was Marvin let me be the uh, contractor for the Barbara Streisand tour in 94 mm. when she came out of retirement and she did that first tour in uh, 94. And I, that was a 65 piece orchestra. And Marvin had enough confidence in me to, you know, to let me do that. And that really kind of propelled me in my contracting career because it opened up a lot of doors, you know, people that wouldn't take my phone calls would all of a sudden be willing to at least talk to me. In the seventies, when you were playing shows, I understand that there was no 50% rule. No, no. So how would you take off and how, how did that work? Well, you took off totally at the, uh, at the discretion of the, um, production, you know, the contractor, uh, and, and, or the conductor, you know, you'd have to clear it with the conductor. Um, and then you'd have to clear it with the contractor. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, uh, and at the time, I think we got, it was at least a week, but it might've been two weeks vacation. Um, you know, in a, in, um, a year. But other than that, you are totally at the mercy of the contractor. And the contractor who actually was the production contractor on their playing our song, the trombone player, I'm not going to mention names, but the trombone player took his vacation time to go do a, a music festival, a jazz festival, and it got extended. And he called up the contractor and said, can I get an extra week? And the contractor said, Either come back or you're fired. Damn. And he was fired. Oh man. Well, yeah, it was a different. It was a different animal. It, uh, you know, um, that the whole subbing thing didn't really come into into the contract until I guess early '80s, maybe mid '80s, when John Glazel was the uh, the president of of uh, 802. That's when 802 started to turn a corner uh, in in a lot of regards. Because when I when I first joined um, the union in, in, uh, in the mid-60s and then all through the 70s, I mean, the guys who ran the union 
Max Aaron's and all those guys, uh, I mean, they were, they were not really very amenable to looking out for, for the players. So for the first couple of years of my contracting career, everything was pretty much related somehow to Marvin Hamlich, right? But when those doors started to open, I started getting other things on my own. So like in 96, I did, I think it was 96 that I did the revival of Charlie Brown. And I also did a, uh, an Andrew Lloyd Webber tour uh, with Sarah Brightman, uh, contracted that. Um, and then things, you know, the, the, the next big thing for me was contracting Lion King. And that was in 97. We're coming up on our 25th anniversary this year. You know, that, that also kind of gave me a certain level of, of respect and, rep, and a reputation, you know, so. Were you still playing drums throughout all this stuff? Yeah, too? you know, well, like I said, you know, starting around 89, 90, I was, I was with Marvin and he used to do, I don't know, I guess he used to do maybe 125 dates a year, maybe. I mean, most times it w- we would be running out to do like, uh, a th- like a three-day weekend with the Pittsburgh Symphony or the Dallas Symphony. So he used to do maybe 125 to 130 dates a year. So I was doing that. And like I said, I was playing drums and conducting for him. Uh, and that lasted for 15 years. And I was subbing, I was still subbing on shows. After the Goodbye Girl, I didn't have another show of my own playing wise until Marvin insisted that I do a show called imaginary friends in 2004. I didn't want to do it, but he insisted and I couldn't say no, but I stopped subbing like in the late nineties because I, I, I found that I was really good at the contracting thing. It was like sort of tapping into a, a, a skill set that I didn't realize I had. And uh, so I just, you know, I use the expression, I jumped into it with all four feet. I just, you know, I just completely committed to doing that. And um, so I stopped, I stopped doing that kind of, you know, I stopped playing basically. Uh, and I really haven't played professionally in, it's gotta be 15 years or more now, you know. And I told you the other day, I, I, I finally set up my tubs in my basement because I've got the, I've gotten the itch to get back to, you know, just seeing what's in there anymore, you know. When you were taking those drums around town in the 70s and in, in the 80s, what kind of drums did you use? And did you find a certain kind of drum or a certain either case or anything to be more durable than others? You know, I know that, that cases and, and stuff have, have really kind of progressed uh, quite a bit. But, you know, I used to, I don't even know if they still make, do they still have the, the tuxedo brand of, of uh drum well covers. i used to i used to use those i haven't yeah. so i had like i had a standard you know a fiberglass uh is a fiber whatever that is a trap case you know on wheels mm-hmm. and then, uh, i used to i used to put one tom tom in the bass drum because back then you know i had the whole i only had one head on on the bass <laughs> drum so one tom tom went in the bass drum and then the other uh like the floor tom used to sit sideways on the bass drum in the case. So that's how I used to wheel it all over town. Um, I had that, the kit that I s- sent you the picture of, uh, 
that's the kit that I, I acquired that kit in the late seventies, like 78, maybe. And it's a, it's a five ply, uh, um, natural walnut, uh, finish. Um, and that setup is what I always used, which is a eight, 10, 12, 14 with a 20 inch bass drum. And, um, the mount, um, it was a, I don't even think they make it anymore. It was a Ludwig tri-mount. So I could put three toms. And you saw that setup on in the picture. They're like mm -hmm. sort of nestled together. Uh, three mounted on the bass drum and then a, a standalone floor tom. I know a lot of guys have, uh, are really into the double floor toms. It's uh, something I never got into. But, uh, and, uh, you know, snare drums... Um, my favorite snare drum for a long time was from that same era. It was a Slingeland brass six and a half inch uh, snare drum. I also had a I had a couple of vintage drums like like a, a 1930s or 40s Levy Ludwig eight hole uh, five inch snare drum that was fantastic. Uh, and both of those drums. Let me see when did I get into it? I think. It might have been when I was uh, doing the Goodbye Girl pre-Broadway in Chicago. I bought some calf heads. <laughs> so both of those drums are, are still set up today with calf heads on them. You said you were influenced by the Beatles, of course, Ringo yeah. Starr. Who were some other drummers that influenced you back in the 70s and 80s? Well, of course, you know, of course, uh, Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and, and uh, you know, Art Blakey, you know, when I was working at the at the Village Gate in the in the late sixties, like I said, it was still a jazz club. And what would happen is on weekends during the fall and winter, they would have jazz on the weekends, and we had to completely break down the setup. We had to strike the stage, uh, and then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday there would be jazz acts down there. So I, I was always able to stay. So I saw all of those people live, Cannonball, Miles, uh, uh, um, wow. Bill Evans, uh, uh, Art Blakey, I used to, Dizzy Gillespie. I used to just stay and watch watch those guys play. You know, that was when I, that's when I first saw Tony Williams. I couldn't believe how a 20-year-old guy could play like that, man. Anyway, um, and then, you know, during the summer, uh, they, they had jazz every night. So we had, to, we had to break down the set every, I had to break down the drum, the, the whole setup every night because they had, uh, they had jazz again. You know, Gary Burton, I see Gary Burton. It, you know, it was, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, and then, what, you know, in the early 70s, um, the first time I heard Steve Gadd, uh, it was like a, it was like a, uh, it was like one of those moments where it's like, wow, I'm never going to play like that guy. So there's a choice to be made. I'm either going to let him inspire me so that I can aspire to something, or I'm just going to burn my drumsticks and go do something else. <laughs> because to me, you know, uh, Gad to me is is my all-time favorite, all-time favorite. And yes, there are a lot of great drummers, man. I, you know, uh, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson, 
you know, even going back before that, Gene Krupa. I mean, there's a lot of great drummers, a lot of great drummers today. But, you know, for me, Gad has always been the, the, the number one, uh, the number one guy, you know. So, uh, so I, I chose to let him inspire me instead of giving up. <laughs> Speaking of the number one guy, when I g- got into the uh, business of Broadway with, Menf- with Memphis, I just remember your name being uh, thrown around as the number one guy. When you were coming up and you were getting into contracting, who was the number one guy or girl, woman, man, during your uh, formative years learning the contracting business? Um, well, I mean, obviously the 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 main guys through my early career, but before, as of when I was a player, and then when I started to compete with them as a contractor, the main guys were, uh, you know, John Miller, um, um, Mel Rodman, Red Press. Those are the you know those are the guys that that did most of the work. And when I was coming up in the early '90s. I would say that uh, John was probably the, the biggest contractor, you know. It's different, you know, now I, I, nobody mentored me, nobody, I mean, I learned how to do what I, what I do or did um, on my own. And I made some, I made some, you know, I made some errors along the way. I, you know, there was a learning experience, a learning curve. Um, you know, people, some people were surprised, uh, you know, six, seven years ago when I decided to, uh, start to pull back a bit that, that I would take on Mike Aaron's as a full partner, but, you know, I, I had no problem with that. I mean, I, I, I've, I've given him, uh, every advantage I could, you know, I've, I've, taught him everything that I know and and hopefully I've, I've helped him avoid a lot a lot of the mistakes I made early on so you know um, you know I the, it was it was a, a little I think probably a little different back then when I was coming up as a contractor you know the other thing is Clayton I'd been around for a long time and um, at that point I was in my mid-40s already you know uh, when I started contracting and, um, you know, I, I had a couple of rubs with, um, uh, with Mel Rodman who, you know, he passed, oh, I guess it's gotta be over 20 years ago, but, um, Mel was like the, uh, one of the, the big guys. I mean, he, he did a lot of stuff. He was a saxophone player. Um, and I, I knew him basically through my brother because my brother was also a, a reed doubler so they were friends and um but you know it, it uh i i learned how to do what i do on my own and um and i'm not saying that i didn't have you know i had full support of marvin hamlish and as the years went by i think i established a pretty good relationship and and reputation I always prided myself on the fact that I was able to uh, have a good rep with both the players and management. I'm sure there are guys out there who who um, 
think I did them wrong or in, in some way and they're not big fans and I, I think that just goes with the territory. But I think for the most part, most musicians enjoyed working for me. Uh, I think most musicians were happy to get a call from me to do a show. Um, and I had great relationships with producers and general managers. And look, I've, I've had a very blessed career as a contractor. I, I became far more successful than I could have ever imagined going into it, you know. And I think it's just a proof of, of what I brought to the table, you know, what I, the way I approached my work. And, uh, you know, the thing is with, with um, you know, I pride myself that I gave Sean McDaniel his first Broadway show. I mean, he was subbing, I think, on 11 shows. He didn't have his own gig. And I hired him to do Spamalot in 2005, I think. So, you know, look, I've, I, I've opened the door for a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of players. Uh, and what I say to, to young people who want to break into the scene because that's what, like we talked earlier, everybody wants a Broadway show, right? It's the, it's the best gig in town now. In my day, and it's probably somewhat true now, a lot more guys did what I did, which is you went on the road for a couple of years. You know, I did three or four uh, show tours, you know, and, um, uh, and then you, you kind of make a transition um, a guy who's like that is, is, uh, who's been very successful on Broadway is Gary Selkson. You know, Gary was on the road for a number of years with, with different tours and whatever, and, and, um, you know, eventually established himself. So the thing is that you either do it that way or you get lucky enough to connect with players and become a sub because I can't tell you uh, it's, the number is, is pretty high of the people who I met or became aware of because they subbed on one of my shows and they were good. They were successful. They, they, you know, and, uh, and it led to my hiring them the next time I had an opportunity for their instrument, you know, so that's kind of, that's kind of how it happens. You have to cut your teeth. You have to, you have to make your bones as it were, you know, uh, subbing, uh, it's very unlikely. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm sure it has, but it's very unlikely that somebody's going to come into town and just get a show. Well, people that are listening or watching this, they're going to be like, so you talk about doing a tour. How do I go about getting a tour? If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician 
who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. Well, people that are listening or watching this, they're going to be like, so you talk about doing a tour. How do I go about getting a tour? You let guys like me and Mike Aarons and John Miller know that you're willing to go on a tour. You know, now there's all these websites now, um, Clayton, there's Muse and there's Maestra and, you know, Mike Aarons has a pretty, uh, he's created a pretty extensive website where musicians can register on, it's, uh, he, he calls it our website, it's called M Squared Music. Um, and people can register on the website and, you know, it gives us an opportunity to, to vet some people, to listen and whatever. Um, so, yeah, if you want to, if you're willing to, Mike and I are always looking for people that are uh, good players who are willing to t- tour. Because, you know, I mean, I, I myself, without Mike, I have the Lion King tour, the Wicked tour, and then together with Mike, we have four Hamilton companies, uh, Dear Evan Hansen um, and Pretty Woman, right? So... Did, and I, 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 I replaced a keyboard player two months ago on the Wicked Tour, and I'm currently in the, in the process of trying to find uh, a suitable replacement on the Lion King Tour. So, you know, if people are willing to tour, they got to let guys like me and Mike Aarons and John Miller and uh, Howie Joins, they have to let them know that, uh, that you know, and that's... That is a that is certainly a path to, uh, you know, to getting established as a good player, and then at some point you want to come into you want to come to New York and you want to you know, the opportunity though is you know you got to think about altogether on Broadway there's what even if you count in subs there are maybe what four or five hundred people that make a living on Broadway mm. musicians I'm talking about. So that's a pretty small, you know, group of people um, in a very large union, right? So, you know, it's 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 a hard it's a hard nut to crack, but if you've got the goods, Clayton, it it works out, man. You know, if, if you if you can play, it works out. How does somebody, you know, we talked about the, the touring aspect. Somebody comes to town and says, you know, I want to sub. I want to be like Sean McDaniel. I want to sub on a bunch of shows. How do I go about doing that? Well, that's the key to that. And I say this all the time to, to people who contact me who are new to town. 
you've got to be very persistent because uh, you know you you're aware that 802 publishes a a uh, they have a website that lists all the broadway shows and all the personnel right so you have to go on that website you have to find the people that play your instrument right and you gotta you gotta get in touch and uh you know even to the point of like saying look i know you don't you may not need a sub but can i come and sit and watch what you do and that's you just have to be very persistent and you just have to really um approach it from that perspective you know if you get an opportunity to go and sit great you know you never know when somebody's going to be up against uh, needing a sub, right? And the other thing is, you don't ever say no when uh, if if work comes your way via that path. Let's say you're sitting in a pit with somebody, right? And you're watching their show, and at some point that that player might get called for a gig or might know of a gig that he can't do. And hey, but there was that young guy who sat with me. Let me see if he wants. So that happens too. And you know, you have to be open to that, and you and you have to be willing to do the to do those gigs, to do the gigs. You have to be willing to pay that price, because the only way you're going to get anywhere is that you have to be heard. You have to be heard. I mean, you could have a. I can't tell you how many fantastic resumes I've seen in my lifetime but the the execution on the other side hasn't been what it needs to be so you know you can look at somebody on paper and say wow this guy looks great but then you get a chance to hear him and it's like hmm doesn't really match the depth of the of the resume you know so you gotta find. You have to find opportunities to be heard. You have to be heard. It kind of ties into the question I was going to ask. If I had a show, the Blood, Sweat, and Tears musical, and I'm a producer, and I have twenty five million dollars to put into it, I want you to assemble a band. I want a great drummer to be a part of this show. How do you go about picking that particular drummer for that show? Hmm. Good question. I mean, I'd have to think about the 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 drummers that I know. Right. I'd have to think about um, the guys that I've had good experience with, like you, like Buddy Williams, like Sean McDaniel, like Gary Selickson, like Sammy Marandino. And then, of course, you know, there's there's my uh, my old crew of guys that that I love to death. Guys like Warren Odes, Ray Marchica, Steve Bartosik, Clint Gannon, you know, uh, I mean, that there's there's a vast array of you guys that are all capable, and um, and for me, being a drummer, I'm always looking for the drum bass connection. The the I want those two those two chairs to be meshed up. I mean, I think about, um, for instance, I think about uh, Sammy Marandino on on Kinky Boots. We had Mike Viseglia on bass. I mean, they just killed it together. Killed it, you know? So for me, that's, that's, I'm not just looking in that scenario that you painted, I'm not looking just for the drummer or the, or what I might think is the right drummer. I'm looking for the right drummer bass connection. 
I'm looking for that, for those two guys. And then, you know, I might even start to consider where does the guitar player fit into that, into that little rhythm section, you know? So I'm, you know, I've known great, a lot of great guys. I mean, you know, keyboard players, um, do you know uh, Ted Baker? He was the original lead keyboard player on Lion King. He also worked with Steely Dan. Uh, you know, he's, I mean, Ted's just a monster player. He's, you know, like, he's like somebody like Joe Joubert. I mean, Joubert is like off the charts. I mean, there, there is nothing Joubert can't do. I know, he's great. Uh, Joubert is, is off the charts, man. He's just, I mean, for me, there's nobody like Joseph because he can do everything. He can sit down and play you a, 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 a sonata or he can, he can, you know, rock out or he can, he can do an R&B thing, whatever. It doesn't matter. Joseph can do it all. I've always been a big fan. I, that was a, a great experience for me. I met Joseph on, uh, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a thing called Three Mo Tenors. Do you remember that? I've heard the name. Yeah. It was like, you know, there was a, uh, for a period of time, there were like these three opera singers, uh, Domingo, uh, Placido Domingo, whatever. And they used to go around doing arias. So there was another version uh, of that called Three Mo Tenors, which was, I can't remember, Thomas. No, I can't remember the three guys that did it. But anyway, it was like a, a big you know, full-sized orchestra, string section, whatever. And I did a, um, I did that. That was where I met Joseph because um, he was like the uh, supervisor guy. And um, uh, we did a bunch of concerts at the Manhattan, the Hammerstein Ball, and we did a bunch of concerts there. So that's where I met Joseph. I'm going to go back to the Lion King. You, you got the Lion King and that catapulted you into a different, uh, I guess, level of awareness for everyone on Broadway. Yeah. That led you to other, um, other contracting opportunities. And did you feel overwhelmed with that at first? Or? No, people have asked me that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times Mike Aaron's has said to me, how did you do this by yourself? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was just like I, like I said earlier, I just, I just totally embraced it. I was, I, I, I realized that I did it well. And, and I, I wanted to do it and I enjoyed doing it. And, um, I mean, there were years in the early two thousands where I was, I was juggling like three, four, maybe even five shows in the same season. You know, there were a number of times when multiple shows that I was connected to were vying against each other for the Tony award. The most famous one is, is in 2003, I contracted Avenue Q and they beat out Wicked for Best Musical. And they were both my shows. So, you know, it, it, I don't know, it's, 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 uh, it's just something I, it just sort of, it just was a right fit for me. You know, I just, I could handle it and, and there were years when I had multiple things going on, multiple shows. And then, you know, then the shows that I had that were successful started to spawn tours, which is another whole animal because you have to find a whole other level of player. You have to find guys that are, first of all, you have to find guys that are either 
established and, and what they want to do is tour, right? So that's why I know players all over the country. They're not interested in coming to New York. You know, they live in Florida and they want to do a tour, you know? Um, so that's a whole different approach. That's a whole different level of musician because you have to find either young guys, um, like that's how I met uh, um, Giancarlo Detrizio, you know, is that his name? Yeah, Giancarlo. He did the original uh, tour of uh, Book of Mormon. So that's how I met him. So you have to find guys that are that are young and talented and looking to make a mark and go on the road. Then there's a whole other strata of player that is established on in tour world, you know, that you can tap into. But it's a um, that was a whole different experience for me putting you know putting a, a tour together because um, uh, you know it's it's uh, it requires a, a bit of of work and I you know I said this to people and it may sound strange but in my years of contracting tours sending tours out I'd have to say that easily it's fifty percent. It might even be much higher. It might be as much as 60 to 75% of players that I've hired to do tours that I've never met. Wow. Because they were either uh, like replacements on a tour that was up and running. Because I would only be around a tour when it was first put together, right? There was an original group of, of people, right? Um but as I had to start filtering in replacements as a tour runs and people leave, I, many, many times I just relied on gut instinct to hire the right person. Now, I'm not going to represent that I was 100% right. <laughs> there, were, there was some uh, errors in judgment along the way. But, uh, but you know, you're kind of locked into a, a thing where you have to vet people as best you can either through other people that they've worked for right or tours that they've done uh, so that you can get a feel for whether or not this is the right fit for your tour so uh you know i mean i the thing the thing with lion king lion king led very soon after to aida which i contracted and that's actually, I think that's where I met Gary Sellers. Because mm -hmm. he was the, the original drummer with Jim Abbott on keyboard. And, and um, uh, I, had, uh, I had John Harrington on one of the guitar chairs in that, uh, in that, in that show. Mm -hmm. John used to, do, John used to uh, agree to do Broadway shows for me uh, occasionally. That was a long time ago. Also, Ted Nash. I don't know if you know Ted, the the saxophone player. He's with the the the, uh, the uh, Lincoln Center Jazz Band, and he's he's an artist on his in his own right. And uh, he did a bunch of shows for me too. But um, yeah, you know, I I I met you know who Randy Cohn is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the programmer. Mm -hmm. Randy was my assistant conductor on on the uh, the Aida tour. Uh, Randy Landau, the bass player, was was the, the original bass player on that tour, along with um, uh, uh, I think Bobby Baxmeyer did that. 
also. Wow. The, um, <laughs> you know, that's another, another move that happened for me in the late 90s. Um, Tim Weil, who was the original music director on Rent, they had two tours out. And Tim was, had become like sort of aware of who I was and what I did. And, and he brought me into Rent to, to manage, from a contracting perspective, the two tours, because they had two tours out. So uh, that was also a, a major uh, thing for me, because, I mean, there were some great players on those tours. I mean, Randy Landau was on, those, on, those, on one of those tours. Alan Childs, the drummer. Do you know Alan, the drummer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Alan's, what an amazing drummer he is, man. Yes, he, he is. He's like he's like Sammy Merendino. They in that genre, man. They they produce a sound from the drums that it's uh, it's just hard to it's hard to describe or also hard to duplicate. You know, mm-hmm. it's got, it kind of reminds me of uh, uh, do you know the drummer who uh, Jeff Picaro? Mm-hmm. He was with yeah with uh, Boz Skaggs and you know died at a very early age but i mean that so those you know so I, those and um uh kenny brescia uh you know kenny actually did i knew kenny because he did the broadway uh production you know um yeah i you know it was it was uh that was quite an experience because a couple of times we had to mount uh, a resident company of rent in san francisco and so i had to I had to vet all of these local players in San Francisco, but that's where I met. And I, he's still, uh, he's been doing shows for me for 20 years now. Uh, do you know the drummer, John Nader? Mm-mm. He's, uh, he was based in San Francisco and he moved to LA. Uh, Mike and I put him on because of me. I I've known John, like I said, for 20 years, he's done a bunch of, he did Lion King for me in, in San Francisco. He did Legally Blonde for me in San Francisco. He did Wicked for me in San Francisco, you know. So um, he did uh, Hamilton in San Francisco. And and then he, he asked if uh, we would put him on the L.A. company because he wanted to check out L.A. He wanted to move to L.A. and just check out the scene. So he... Uh, yeah, he's he's done both both versions of um, Hamilton in L.A. pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. <laughs> I have a qu- I want to just address something that a lot of people might not know. So there are the producers, there's the contractor, there's the in-house contractor, and there's the musicians. Could you share exactly? Because I know that. Mike Aarons was the in-house contractor at Memphis. And then when he left, he put me on to be the in-house contractor. And I got a little taste of how that worked. And I worked with you and worked with the, uh, the house manager of the Schuberts. For people that don't know, do you pick the in-house contractor? Um, yeah, usually it's a, uh, it's usually and in most cases, it was always my choice, um, but it, it's always something that I did in consultation with um, the conductor because I need to, 
I need to have a very good relationship between the house contractor and the conductor because they work very closely together. And I always view the house contractor. I mean, when I had shows, well, I still have shows, but I mean, I always view the house contract as my, uh, for lack of a better term, my lieutenant on site. So I need them to be in the, in touch with me. I need to, I need to have, I need to rely on them to keep me informed about what's happening. And the really good house contractors for me, Mike was like this. Um, and I have a couple others, uh, the really good house contractors know, they know the balance of like what they should call me with and what they shouldn't. So it's, it's a delicate balance, you know, some, cause sometimes you have house contractors that call you, about everything. And then there are others, I've had experience where there are others who don't call you enough so that you're, you're misinformed. And the worst thing as a contractor for me is to be blindsided by an issue, you know, to be called by the general manager or the company manager, or even in some cases, the, the producer mm. uh, who will say, you know, like, this is, hap this is happening. Why haven't you, dealt with this or why haven't you know why aren't you aware of this so you know it's a delicate thing it's a it's a it's it's a it's a it's a balanced thing that has to uh that has to exist between you and your people um how yeah so for the most part i i i always had a house contractor in mind you know when i was putting a band together um always had someone in mind but i would never unilaterally just say this is your house contractor. I would always discuss it with the conductor because, you know, I'm, I view my, my position as being, I'm here to serve the conductor. I'm here to serve the production. I'm not, I'm not the top of the food chain. I'm in the food chain, <laughs> but I'm not the top of the food chain. In my, in my estimation, the way the, the way Broadway is, has um, evolved, you know, back when I started, there were no music supervisors. I mean, there was a music director. You know, the conductor was the music director. And if a show was successful and went on the road, maybe that conductor would become the supervisor, right? Now, shows have a music supervisor right from the jump. I mean, there's a music supervisor right from the beginning. You know, back in the day, we didn't have that. It, was, it didn't exist. Um, so, you know, you have to be... You have to you have to just collaborate with those people, you know. The other piece of this, uh, Clayton, and I don't want to get too deep or far afield from what what you want to talk about. But when I started contracting, I had a, trend, a tremendous amount of autonomy. Okay, I mean, I would I would think about a show and what the the style was and people that I wanted to, that I thought were appropriate and whatever, that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, it, it sort of has evolved or it, it did evolve over like the last, I'd say 15 to 20 years where the makeup of an orchestra band has become a collaborative effort on the part of the contractor, the conductor, the supervisor, and in some instances, the orchestrator 
and if they're alive, the composer. Because I've done a lot of revivals as well, you know, where the composers are long gone. But if the composer is still alive, um, uh, you know, a lot of them have have opinions. And I'm not going to say that I haven't butted heads uh, about personnel, but it's more of a committee collaborative effort nowadays than it used to be. Mm. Um, I kind of, you know, I kind of miss the autonomy that I used to have, you know, because I used yeah. to like to look at a band or an orchestra and say, uh, with some pride, that's my band. It's not, they're not entirely my band anymore, you know. Things that a drummer should never do in a Broadway pit. That's a, that's a good one. You know, see, here's the thing that we haven't touched on yet, uh, Clayton. Here's the thing about playing Broadway. The most fun on a Broadway show is creating the show, right? I mean, that's the most that's that's the most fun, right? Is when is when you're you're in the rehearsal studio and you're and you're creating the show, right? There's all of that energy, all of that creative process. It's like you're as a drummer, you're creating your your part, you right? Then you get into the run. And see, this is where a lot of guys go wrong. Because the thing about Bring Your Broadway Show is the best way I've always been able to describe it is you have to realize sitting in the in your in your chair eight months into the run, the audience out there is seeing the show mostly for the first time. The majority of the people sitting in the audience that night are seeing the show for the first time. So they deserve to hear the show at its best in its best form, right? So that's the trick, is to be creative. And then if you get into, if you're lucky enough to get into a long run, maintaining that energy and that creativity, because once it's established, yeah, I mean, as a drummer, yeah, you can, can play different fills, right? Whatever. But it's, it's, it's realizing that once you create it, your job changes. Your job then becomes maintaining what you've created. Because, and that's, and if you want to talk about things not to do, well, you can't get, you can't go out, you know, it, it, because you feel like you want to like go take a left on something. You can't do it, right? Because you have to stay true to what you, what you as the drummer have created. I, I always characterize like what am I looking for in a in a player and I want to I want a great player who can get along with people because I made a lot of mistakes early thinking that well all I need is a great player but they weren't they weren't such great human beings so there was a lot of rub okay so those are my two criteria I don't care about anything else can you play your acts and can you get along with people? If you can do those two things and you understand what a long run show demands of you, then you're gonna be successful. Look, this, you, 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 can't, you, you can't screw around with the music, right? I mean, once it's up and running, just because you're feeling 
um, that you want to, you know, you, you need to be, uh, you need to have more freedom. Uh, sorry. Doesn't work that way. You have a responsibility. If you have a chair on Broadway, you have a responsibility to deliver that chair, the music of that chair with consistency. So, you know, I don't, you know, I, I can't really think of too many like, um, don'ts for a drummer on Broadway as long as they understand that concept, as long as they understand that, that once they've been through the creative process, their, their responsibility becomes maintenance. So, and it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy playing the same thing eight times a week. Yeah, I used to have, I had a ball whenever I had a show, I used to, I, I had a ball because that to me, that to me in and of itself was a, was a challenge. Can I keep it fresh every night? Can I, can I deliver the best possible show that I'm capable of taking into account that the people listening to me that night are hearing me and the show for the first time? So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, some guys get that. Uh, some guys don't. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's really a, um, in, in this age that we live in now, I don't, I don't think it's too much of an issue. I mean, there's some really great drummers, man. I mean, you know, there are guys that, that, you know, I saw that you had a, a recent uh, podcast with Jared Shonick, man. Oh my God. Yeah. Great player, man. One of Great my player. favorites. Yeah. Speaking so. of favorites, I got a, three more questions for you. Three. <laughs> okay, go. Your fa- the, the the show that you had the most fun playing on as a drummer, and the show that you just found in general to be your favorite overall musical of all time, or is it a play? Well, that's. Hmm. And the last question has nothing to do with Broadway. Yeah. I got to think about that because obviously playing our song, they're playing our song um, always has a special place in my heart because it was my first show that was mine and I created the book, you know, so that's always had a special place for me, but on an, in an equal way, the first Broadway show I ever played promises, promises, has always been one of my favorites. I loved playing that show. Um, I loved playing Chorus Line. I didn't play it a lot. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I, I tell people this and it, it kind of goes back to what I said to you earlier when I came out of Manhattan and started in the early 70s, I just was like brimming with confidence, you know, I met my wife in San Francisco. She was doing the show Chorus Line in San Francisco. And I was going through San Francisco with the Fifth Dimension. I was with them for a, for a while. So the conductor of that company of Chorus Line was a friend of mine. And I went to say hello, introduced me to my wife. And he said, hey, you want to play the show? I'd never seen it. He said, you want to play the show? I said, yeah, why not? So I, I sat in the pit on a Tuesday night. The drummer was a, a guy named Dorian McGee. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, he was. Yeah, I, I I don't know him, but I know who he is. Yeah, so he was the drummer. So I sat in the pit on a Tuesday night, watched him play the show. 
and I played the Wednesday matinee. Mm. Yeah. And I have a tape to prove it. So <laughs> anyway, the thing is, I, I, what I mean by that is that you can't do that now with what's with what a, a Broadway drum book has become with the Ableton and the electronics and the, the, you can't do that. Right. So, but anyway, that, so I enjoyed playing that show. Uh, obviously I enjoyed um, Goodbye Girl because I created that one too. That was, that was mine. But I would say that, you know, Promises always has a very, very special place in my heart because, um, you know, I, I, I loved playing that show and it, and it was, I was on tour for 10 months with it. So, um, well, my favorite show of all time, there's, there's a lot of shows, man. There are, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be connected to a lot of shows and I, I can't, I, I can't, uh, of the shows that I have that are currently running, I really can't, I really can't, you know, can't really pick one over another because they're they've all been great to me. Uh, I will say that that like a lot of people, I was completely blown away by Hamilton. You know, um, and then there was a show in the early two thousands that I that I contracted. I didn't play it. Mike Aaron's was on it uh, that I contracted. Um, that musically has always been a favorite of mine. It was called um, Next to Normal, and it had a it had a relatively short run on on Broadway, but uh, musically and what it, what the story was has just always been a favorite of mine, and it's been probably close to twenty years since I contracted that show. We it started off Broadway at Second Stage, and then it moved to to Broadway, and. Um, you know, the original drummer was uh, Damien Bassman and Mike Aarons was in the band. And, and uh, so, yeah, look, I, there was a show I, Mike and I did a couple of years ago that wasn't successful. Um, uh, Honeymoon in Vegas that Jason Robert Brown wrote. Hmm. And we put together a f smoking band, man. Uh, Jimmy Samplino was on on uh, um, on piano, and and uh, the guy who was the original drummer on Dear Evan Hansen, Jamie, um, oh, it's going to kill me that I can't remember his last name, but he was a great drummer, man. So, Eblin, yeah, Jamie Eblin, right? So this, I, look, I've enjoyed a lot of. I I, I had a good time doing a lot of the revivals that I did. It was like, it was fantastic to experience shows like Man of La Mancha, um, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Gypsy, you know, to experience those revivals, you know, uh, because of, of what they what they meant in, originally, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a lot of favorites, man. I, look, I, at the end of the day, <laughs> I guess you could just say that uh, my sensibility has always been very, very much in Broadway theater, you know. Final question I have for you. Tiger Woods average scoring is 68.17. Is yours higher or lower than his? Oh, much higher. <laughs> last season, uh, 
last golf season. So the golf season of 2021, my average score was uh, 85.7. I don't know if you know much about the, the golf handicap system. No, I don't. Uh, I've always heard about it. I don't know exactly yeah, what it well, is. Well, you know, there's the, the, when you, after you've played, I think it's 10 rounds now, it used to be 20, but after you play a certain number of rounds, you are assigned a, an index. Okay. And that index is used at every golf club that you play at to establish what your handicap is for that golf course. Okay. So for instance, my current index is 9.1. So when I play my golf course where I belong, I'm a 10, but on a different golf course that might be uh, deemed to be more difficult, my 9.1 index might translate into a 12 handicap. So that means that it's above the 72? Like you were... Well, what it means is that is that uh, in a perfect world, if I'm, if, I, if I'm playing a golf course where I'm a 12 handicap, right? Mm -hmm. it, the index establishes that I'm a 12 handicap. What that means is that I should, in a perfect world, I should shoot 84. Mm -hmm. Because minus the 12, mm -hmm. I'd be at 72, which would be the, you know, par, right? So the, the whole thing about a handicap is it, it, it allows players of different abilities to play and sort of have an even playing field. I play with a, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine that I play with all the time. He's a five and I'm wow. a 10. So when we play at our course together, he has to give me five strokes. Now, what that means is that on the, the top five, on every golf course, each hole is rated from one to 18, right? So like the number seven hole might be the number one handicap because of its, its difficulty, right? And the, the 12th hole might be the second, whatever. So if he's giving me five strokes, that means on the, on the top five holes on that golf course, I'm getting a stroke from him, which means that if I have a par and he has a par, I win the hole because I have a stroke and it, makes, it gives me uh, a Oh, I got you. Wow. But do you get more strokes per on that difficult hole? No, no, you get the same well, amount of well, strokes. It, it, it gets it gets a little complicated. There are guys who have much higher handicaps, like they they might be a like a twenty two, right? Which means that on a on a on an eighteen hole golf course, there are four holes that they're getting two strokes. Okay. So that they can get down to the 18, whatever, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, it gets a little complicated, but, you know, it, the game itself. And I said this to you the other day when we were talking on the phone that, for me, all of the time, energy, and commitment that I used to have to playing drums, I've just transferred all of that to my golf game. And sometimes the re you know sometimes the results are good and sometimes they're not you know it's, it's it's like when you're playing drums you know there are some days where you can just you know it just flows right the the biorhythms all line up and it just you know same thing happens on the golf course some days wow. it just yeah 
I think this summer I'm going to try it. I'm gonna yeah. Look, I've been lucky enough. I've, I've uh, in the last oh, five, six years, I've broken 80, uh, maybe five times, you know, oh, shot wow. as low as 77, you know, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lifetime pursuit, man. It's just like playing, it's like playing an instrument, man. It's the same, it's the same commitment. It's the same journey. It's the same, you know, you know, there are people that, that look at golf and they think it's an elitist kind of like, you know, but that's a, you know, that's bull or, Fine. That's fine. But I don't see it that way. Cause I see it as a, cause it's just you and that, in that stupid little dimpled ball, man, <laughs> nobody's throwing it at you. You know, nobody's trying to steal it from you. It's just <laughs> that little ball sitting on a tee and you have to hit it. It's no offense, no defense. No, that's right, man. You know, you don't have a pitcher throwing a 98 mile an hour fastball on the inside part of the plate. You know, it's like sitting right there. And you think it's easier to, to hit it, but it ain't. So. Yeah, up where I live, there, you know, there's Van Cortlandt Park, and I think yeah, actually, they have some golf lessons up here. So, yeah. I might see you maybe not this summer, maybe next summer. Well, when you when you feel that you're ready to venture out, man, you're always welcome to come and play my club with me. All right, you can be my guest. I appreciate that, and thank you for being my guest here on Broadway Drumming 101. Clayton, it was it was a pleasure to talk, and I hope I didn't expound to. I have a tendency to to get going sometimes, and just you know. No, it was fascinating. I learned so much, and you're you know an encyclopedia of knowledge. So, uh, thank I you, man. Appreciate it. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and uh, and hopefully uh, I I look forward to. Uh, how this is going to play with our brethren, our drumming <laughs> brethren. Yes, I'm sure they'll be interested in hearing your your thoughts. And again, thank right, you. Man. Thank you. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.